We're beginning a new series today. A series entitled Ecclesiastes, Searching for Meaning. And uh, as I was going through this process a few weeks ago, I was thinking, okay, do I want to just do a Mother's Day sermon and then start Ecclesiastes next Sunday? Or do I want to just go ahead and jump right in? You know, like, why begin Ecclesiastes today? Uh, And you know, let me share with you a part of why I made the decision. Depression, by the way, would anybody like one of those? We have more of the copies of Ecclesiastes back there. Would anybody like one of them? Um, I'm sure that Ray would bring bring them around. If anybody anybody want one of the little copies of Ecclesiastes, okay, because you you can write your notes on the right side. We didn't do an insert today, um, but depression is a common and serious illness. And a recent study revealed that about one out of ten women in the United States reported symptoms that suggested they experienced an episode of major depression in the past year. We have eight women here today. That's close to the getting to the ten to the one out of ten. In their book, Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism, I I, I didn't read the book, I just read several reviews of the book, but there was something that stuck out in it. Because this was a New York Times and a Wall Street Journal bestseller, as well as the New York Times notable book of, of 2020. Anne Case and Angus Deaton, these two female writers, wrote this. It's hard to exaggerate the role that deaths of despair have played in increasing women's mortality rates. In 1992, okay, we're only talking 29 years ago. In 1992, white women ages 45 to 54. I know that's a pretty select study group. But there were three time, they were three times more likely to die of heart disease than from a death of despair. Here we are 29 years later. And I continue the quotation. Now that group of women are 30% more likely to die from drugs, alcohol, or suicide. And beneath these deaths, we document increases in pain, in mental distress, and social isolation. Social isolation. Did you hear that? I mean... That's where we've been for the past 14 months. And it's played a toll in a major way. And Ecclesiastes is the perfect match. H.C. Leopold in his book Exposition in Ecclesiastes has written, There is one 
book of the Old Testament that's written particularly to furnish guidance and counsel for God's people in evil days and times of depression. Its counsel is as timely now as it was when the book was written. For this old world has changed but little except for the dress in which it is clad. Guidance and counsel for God's people in evil times and times of depression. Evil days and times of depression. Now, in case you haven't noticed, this book is written for times like these. Now, when I type that line, I, I, last night I, my brain clicks to music. And I thought about that song that we used to sing. In times like these, we need a Savior. Um, and so I've chosen to title my message for today, When Life is Disappointing. Taking a bit of a realistic look at where we truly are located on this Mother's Day of 2021. I think we are called as the church to be those who speak the truth. I would love to give an excited and positive message but I'm not sure that that's where many of you find yourselves right now. And I want to provide some guidance. I love the question that Alistair Begg uh, raised regarding the book of Ecclesiastes. And specifically the passage before us this morning. He said, is there life before death? You know, I'm not ready. I... I'm not ready and I don't believe that the message has to be and has to go to the extent of a statement once made by Ernest Hemingway. Hemingway once said, Life is a dirty trick, a short journey from meaninglessness to meaninglessness. But what is life? What is life? Thomas Cole was an American painter who, when he was 24 years old, he moved to Catskill, New York. Now, Catskill, New York is beautiful. sits right there on the Hudson River uh, in the mountains. And because of that move, uh, it led to a major focus of his on landscape painting and the Hudson River and a lot of the scenes. And uh, he lived there up until he died in 1848. Just before he died, six years before he died, uh, he painted two different series of pictures that were both basically uh, what you would call allegorical or symbolic paintings and series. One of those, a five-part series, was called The Course of Empire in which it depicted some landscape over generations from a near state of nature to actually consumption by the empire and then decline and desolation. And that's now in the collection of the New York Historical Society. But he also painted a four-part series known as The Voyage of Life, which is in the National Gallery in Washington, D.C., Four pictures. The first is a young child in a boat 
going down the small river, overseen by an angel, guided, guarded. The second is a youth, still guarded by an angel. The river, the river has broadened some. Uh, there seems to be an oriental-type castle in the background, maybe symbolizing the aspirations and the dreams. His third painting is about a mature person. But notice the difference. Green vegetation and life, a smooth flowing river. But in maturity and in adulthood, the, the river becomes violent. The scene becomes dark and bleak. Now there's still an angel looking down but somewhat removed, not close by, not imminent. But then, the end of life. The waters are still again, but quite broad. The angel has returned, and life comes to its end. The first painting of the four portrays that period in which a young person in a small skiff uh, is starting to emerge from the overhang of rocks into a stream that's flowers and banks and, and the youth also with the pretty foliage. But then as we move into adulthood, you get that quicker pace the storms. I remember our son who waited on Je Jesse last night at the restaurant in the group. I remember him saying not that long ago, you know, being an adult's not all it's cracked up to be. And then the ocean opens up and Although it's a stormy sky, there's a representation of the beauty of heaven up there in the sky. You see, there's a visual theme there. The water course gets wider over the four stages. Uh, we move from green and happy foliage to that which is maybe not quite so happy. I think it's an accurate picture of life, don't you? And it reminds us that as we move into life, things do start moving pretty rapidly. And we start to wonder, man, where has time gone? What have we done with what we were given? And I think we're going to see in Ecclesiastes a scan, a vision, a portrayal that maybe can help us as we deal with life that we face today. Let's go to God's Word. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, 
but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, where they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there such a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It's been already in ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. Once we start to read Ecclesiastes, the first question that we need to consider is the authorship. Who wrote the book? And the opening verse seems to give an answer, but it also raises a number of questions. It says, the words of the preacher. Now that seems straightforward enough, except for the fact that preacher is not the only way to translate the Hebrew word koheleth. Some translators refer to the author as teacher, the philosopher, the spokesman. Others prefer to just leave his name under translated and simply call him Koheleth. So what should we do? I think in a word, he is a preacher proclaiming the word. And in this case, we can even be more specific because the preacher is further identified as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, naturally, we think first of King Solomon. For although many kings came from the royal line of David, Solomon is actually the only immediate son of King David who ruled after him in Jerusalem. Furthermore, several of the things that Koheleth tells us about his life sound exactly like that of King Solomon. So, I'm going to proceed as if Solomon was the author, and if by chance he wasn't the actual author, since it doesn't say, I, Solomon, wrote this book, we definitely see that the writer wants us to view the book from that perspective, I think. Uh, Which, when we view Ecclesiastes from Solomon's perspective, we're asked, we're asked, we're, we're forced to ask, The simple question, is life worth living? And when we fail to find meaning, because when hopelessness, despair, emptiness, and purposelessness, good word there, when all of those abound, the search for meaning begins. And so when we fail to find meaning in the material world, despair increases and hope is often lost. Daily activities become routine and ridiculous. 
And sometimes we wonder why we even wake up in the morning. Or, Eric and I heard a man say who went through all of the work to earn his PhD doctoral degree. There are many days that I've just thought I should have stopped and just kept painting, which is what he was doing for a living. You see, that's exactly where we're taken in verses 2 to 11. And that's the, the assertion of the writer. For the most part, life is routine. Some of you are pro- probably familiar with Dr. James Dobson, uh, Christian psychologist, written several really good books. One of the ones that I enjoy the most and I think is still very relevant is a book titled Dare to Discipline in which he talks about how if we don't find that fine balance between being too controlling and too harsh and being too lenient, if we don't find that place in the middle, we create problems on both sides. And he calls us to discipline, but to do it in love. But anyway, in his reflections on this passage and what he's experienced as a Christian psychologist, Dr. Dobson speaks of the humdrum of life. And he refers to it as the straight life. It's not glamorous. It's not exciting. In fact, as we just read in our text for today, verses 3 to 11, life can be downright boring. Ladies especially. But uh, those of you that are primarily homemakers or housewives, but all of us uh, need to hear what he's written. I'm going to quote him. The straight life... For a homemaker is washing dishes three hours a day. It's cleaning sinks and scouring toilets and waxing floors. It's chasing toddlers and mediating fights between preschool siblings. The straight life eventually means becoming the parent of an ungrateful teenager. For the working person, male or female, the situation's just as wearisome. He continues a little bit later. It's pulling your tired frame out of bed five days a week, 50 weeks out of the year. It's earning a two-week vacation in August and choosing a trip that will please the kids. The straight life is spending your money wisely when you'd rather indulge in a new whatever. So why Ecclesiastes? I'm not attempting to make you even more depressed. But to point you to some guidance. Verses 3 to 11 are basically a poem illustrating the frailty and the brevity of life. Who here this morning is not able to look back and wonder where the time went? The older we are, the more shocking it is. Even for Adam and Adam, our our two youngest ones here, Uh, for Anna and Adam. Uh, I'm sure that just four years ago, seems like, wow, that was yesterday. And uh, which one of you parents hasn't gone through the litany of names trying to get up to the youngest one after calling all the names of the ones down through the line? (laughs) 
Life is brief. Life is brief. And Ecclesiastes begins in a very typical Jewish writing pattern for that day. Putting the most important information right there at the beginning. And even the conclusion, putting it right up front. And the perspective of the book is when we look at life under the sun, and that's a key phrase, 30 times. 30 times he'll use the phrase, under the sun. He's talking about from a human perspective. When we look through the lens that the world provides for us, everything is meaningless. I said to somebody about a month ago, I said, if I was proven today by somebody that there in fact was not a God and all of this just happened by chance, I would be suicidal. I really don't know how to counsel an atheist who is suicidal. I'm serious about that. Other than find a relationship with God. In their commentary on Ecclesiastes, Raymond Dillard and Tremper Longman have stated that Ecclesiastes gives the appearance of being written with our time in mind. And consequently, many people have turned to this book for help when they've experienced disillusionment with their world and even with their God. I think that statement of theirs is true. So what advice... Can I share with you? Because if you look at it, we have the stated assertion in verse 2. Basically, everything's meaningless. That word vanity is the Hebrew word hefel. It means breath or vapor. It became a word used for absurdity. And then look at verses 4 down to 7. It's all about ongoing changing cycles. Generation after generation. Sun rising and setting. Wind blowing to the south, coming back from the, to the north. Streams running to the sea, becoming clouds and raining. It doesn't say that, but that cycle. Endless, unchanging cycles. Anybody familiar with Jim McCowan? Minister, he was down in Lafayette for years. Uh, he came out of Indianapolis. He was a minister at the church where one of my mentors, Bob Lowry, grew up. And uh, he's the one that I told you about the story about where he cut the ladies, or the, she, he gave the lady the scissors and she cut the tie off the evangelist. And then he said, Now stick out your tongue. Because that's the next thing that causes problems in this church, not just a flashy tie. Jim McCallum preached a sermon one time in which he said, I understand how meaningless life can be. You get up in the morning and go to work so you can come home and go to bed. So that you can get up in the morning and go to work so you can come home and go to bed. So that on Friday you can come home and go to bed so that you can get the boat out and go to the lake and go round and round and round and round. So that you can go to bed and get up the next day on Sunday and go round and round and round and round. So that you can go to bed and get back going to work. 
Unfortunately, some of the people who had boats and went to the lake on weekends took offense at that. Uh, but life can be meaningless. And I shared with you ladies as I was beginning, and, and I think the rest of us as well, that I think that what can help us to avoid the disillusionment, the hopelessness, the despair, and the purposeless there's that word again, purposelessness of life is to allow it to draw us into that search for meaning. You know the old saying. And it comes up right here uh, in some points that uh, Chuck Swindoll made. I'm going to use his points, but I'm going to use my information because he said it much better than I can. When he talks about the lessons in terms of the answer that we can find, he says that the lessons from Ecclesiastes, first of all, are that the grass isn't always greener on the other side of the fence. That the sensual lure of something better tomorrow robs us of joys offered today. Been there. I've been there. Thinking that, man, if I just if I just get that money saved up, I can get that little bit nicer, bigger motorcycle. I, I almost did that one time. I even took it for a test drive. Rode it all the way to Martinton and showed it to my wife. I don't remember if we rode it together a little bit. Rode it back. And I decided, you know, where we're at right now financially, this might not be a good decision. Although... I was giving myself all the excuses, better gas mileage, more efficient, a little bit safer because bigger and heavier, all the reasons. I almost had myself convinced. But you know what? If I'd have bought that motorcycle that next weekend when we made a trip to Louisville, Kentucky, and we were just north of Austin, Indiana, and I looked in the rearview mirror, and I had a blue cloud following me. It happened to be the rear, rear seal on the transmission. If I'd have bought that motorcycle, we'd have been in hard straits to try to keep take care of having a family vehicle that we had to have. That lure that's constantly there and, and you've seen the same thing that I saw the other day. A beautiful pasture. Green grass. The whole pasture full of green grass. Freshly moistened by heavy dew that night. And six sheep all trying to eat out of about a three and a half or four foot square area. I, I, I believe the cows don't move. I believe the cows are saying, Move! Move. They want that grass that's in front of the other one. Because that grass always does look greener. How many times have you seen an animal trying to stretch its neck through a fence? Chuck Swindoll says that same thing right here. That lure of something better tomorrow robs us of the joys that are offered today. And since it's Mother's Day, allow me to direct this first to you women. And obviously it applies to all of us. Really. 
Really. How much better is that grass and how often is the grass really greener on the other side of the fence? I mean, we've got to resist that lure of this deception. Listen to the words of Proverbs chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. Desire without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. We can't allow those lures. Listen to me. One of the things we will read again and again as we make our way through the book of Ecclesiastes is the importance of choosing to live life in order to please God rather than trying to amass a bunch of stuff and build our own little empires to enjoy tomorrow. Remember the parable that Jesus said? The farmer had such a great crop. Oh, I'm going to build bigger barns and store all this. And God said, you fool, because your life is gone tonight. James, chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a little a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Your life's just a mist. You appear for a little while and then you vanish. You see, if we choose to live our lives in such a way that we'll please God, we heard this yesterday at Eric's commencement address. If we would quit thinking in terms of the world around us, looking through the world's lenses, stop using the world's measures and the world's standards of success and happiness, and start looking through what Ed Stetzer referred to as the new lenses by which we see all things through Christ, then I think we'll find it easier to be content and less likely to catch ourselves chasing our tails in a vain pursuit of happiness. So the question I I need to ask myself, and probably you need to ask yourself, are we investing all, or even most, of our time, our talents, our treasures, in an uncertain future? Believing that somehow our ship's going to come in and we'll finally reap what we think we deserve? Or are we treating each day as a unique gift to be enjoyed and used to God's glory? The second point that Swindoll makes is that the personal temptation to escape is always stronger than the realization of its consequences. Oh, what's he saying there? You've heard it? I've heard it. I just heard it in my office within the last two months. I think I'll just pack up everything and move somewhere else and try to start over. You see, we seldom look at what we anticipate, the immediate satisfactions of what we're doing to see the detrimental, ultimate consequences. However, if we take, and, or excuse me, if we think about the effects of our actions, I think we'll begin to take some firm steps towards seeking the eternal priorities in life and forsake the meaningless pursuits of life under the sun. Proverbs 10. Proverbs 10. 
Go there. Read it. Think about it. I mean, verse 2, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. Verses 8 and 9, the wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Verse 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. And verses 14 down to 17, the wise lay up knowledge, but the fool, the mouth of a fool, brings ruin near. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. The wage of the righteous leads to life. The gain of the wicked to sin. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. You see, in this search for meaning, uh, or just based on the wisdom of God that God had given to him, Solomon came to the point of understanding that many of us are just going to want to escape the humdrum, uh, escape the problems, escape the monotonous, without thinking about the consequences. Third and finally, Swindoll says that we need to learn, we need to open our minds to the fact that as we look at this book, the result of all of our searching, if God is absent, will not be satisfaction. Remember how I began today? Ladies, 30% more likely to die of drugs, alcohol, or suicide than the ladies of 29 years ago. Brought on by an increase in pain, in mental distress, social isolation. And the foundation for why this is the case is found right here in these first 11 verses. Emptiness and a fleeting sense of contentment pervade a life lived without God's perspective and without God's approval. My dad once said, holding his Bible up, he said, you know what? If I come to the end of my life and there isn't a heaven and hell, Living by this book, I've not lost anything of importance. And he looked right into the eyes of someone very close to us. And he said to him, but when we come to the end of our lives, you and I, What if I've been telling you, what if what I've been telling you is in fact right? Where will you be? It's been referred to in history as the wager. The wager. Emptiness and a fleeting sense of contentment. They pervade a life without God's perspective. And the only cure for that dis 
ease, that disease of futility is a consistent walk of faith in and obedience to the living God. Which is where Solomon's search will take us. You go to the end of the book, chapter 12, verses 12 to 14. Of the making of many books there's no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for these women. Women who are here with their families. Women who have taught and showed the way of living the Christian life. I thank You for the women who through the years have kept many, many doors of churches open when the men have failed. Thank You. Thank You for giving me a loving mother. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing.